Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. My name is Danica McKenzie, and I'm the author of The Torrent, my debut crime fiction novel, which won the 2020 Banjo Prize and is out now with HarperCollins Australia. And I'm here today because I am doing a takeover episode of this wonderful pod with the wonderful Veronica Lando, the 2021 winner of the Banjo Prize, and whose debut novel, The Whispering, also crime fiction, is just about to come out into the world with HarperCollins. So welcome to the pod. Pod Veronica. Well, thank you so much, Danuka. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about all things Banjo Prize and, of course, the Spring. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to do this with you. Um, so I thought we'd start by maybe setting the scene for the listeners. So we are uh, both recording this on Zoom and we are having this conversation, you know, from two different ends of the country. Um, and so I am basically in a kind of converted back shed, I guess you could call it, uh, in the back of the house, um, you know, coming to you from beautiful Darwin country in South Sydney. And And I do want to take the opportunity to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, And can you tell us maybe from where you're coming from today, Veronica? I'm coming from the beautiful land of the Wilkerasbo and Bindle people in sunny and very hot Townsville. Um, And I tuck myself away in my husband's office because it's detached from the house and hopefully we um, won't hear too many squawks from the kids. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I've also escaped from the kids, like outside of the house to make sure that they don't disturb me. So hopefully they are asleep. Yes. So um, so I thought this episode is actually um, the brainchild of the wonderful Danny V. Um, she's just full of great ideas. And I actually remember she actually um, messaged me when you won the 2021 banjo. And she said, oh, I've got this great idea. Why don't you as the 2020 winner, you know, interview Veronica as part of the podcast and I thought oh that's a brilliant idea so you know finally here we are uh, on the eve of your wonderful book coming out so we finally get to have this conversation so this is really cool. Yeah, I feel like it's been a long time coming I feel like I've heard about this conversation months and months ago and um, it's yeah it's finally finally happening and it's very exciting to get to have yeah. a Absolutely. It's great to kind of be able to chat with you. Like we were talking about this before we started recording, you know, like sort of in person because we've kind of interacted on social media and it's just been so lovely to kind of go, oh, here we are. This is actually what we both sound like. And this is, you know, to just to have that conversation. It's just lovely. So um, I actually wanted to say a huge congratulations to start with, to say, you know, what a, what a great achievement. Firstly, of course, on the banjo win, but this, this wonderful kind of being just at the cusp of this book coming out. 
And um, I actually have in my notes that, you know, the book is just about to come out, but actually, um, as I understand it, a few early copies have already been getting out to bookstores because you just finished kind of appearing at the Townsville uh, Festival for Stories. Is that right? And then so they released some early copies and I understand some readers have already been reading it. So how does that feel like? Oh, it's, it's so exciting and, um, you know, mildly anxiety-inducing. Yeah. Uh, so you're right, I was involved in the Festival of Stories up here in Townsville just this weekend gone, um, and the wonderful um, Anna Valdinger, our uh, publisher at HarperCollins, um, allowed us to have a few copies released early for the festival so that um, people could buy them there because I was talking and at a few different events and it was really lovely that people that came along were able to, to pick up a copy while they were there. So... Yeah, a few got um, snappled up, which was very exciting to see. And um, then they're, they're actually being stopped at the moment in the local uh, independent bookstore here in Townsville. So there's still a few copies in there. And, um, yeah, it's very exciting to sort of see it sitting in a shop front window already um, a few weeks before its official publication date. Yeah, it's wonderful that kind of that um, local support you get, you know, from your local uh, bookstore, you know, they're just so excited when it's a local author. So, I mean, that's just gorgeous. I saw those photos on social media where you'd posted of your book, you know, in the window display. And so that was gorgeous. So congratulations again. That's, that sounds, that sounds wonderful. So um, I just wanted to um, take us kind of take you right back to, I guess, the banjo win. And I remember how kind of overwhelming that time was for me, you know, just just the, the fact that, you know, the, the fact that um, of winning itself and just then the, the whole ride afterwards. So I wanted to ask how was that for you and then how has it been after the win, you know, in terms of, uh, I guess, your, your writing life, how has that changed? Yeah, so um, I obviously found out I'd been shortlisted last year in September, and that for our family was a pretty busy time anyway. We had just relocated after spending almost a decade in Brisbane. We'd just moved back up north, um, up to Townsville, and we'd also just not that long ago found out that we were expecting our third child. So it was a very sort of time of change for our family anyway, and I will never forget finding out that I made the shortlist. We were uh, driving on a road trip from Cairns back down to town, but we've been away for the weekend. Um, my husband and my then two, just two kids, and um, I, I was driving, and I had this missed call come through, or this call come through on my phone from an unknown number, and I assumed that it was going to be like a plumber or an electrician because we just bought a house and we're getting a few things fixed with it. And um, we stopped at an ice cream store um, with the kids, had some ice cream, and then I went back to the car early and in the car park. I was like, oh, I better listen to to that voicemail, and it was. Um, Anna, the publisher, um, with all these delightful words saying how I had been shortlisted for Banjo and how she was, you know, she loved the book and it was so atmospheric. And I remember just, I must have looked ridiculous or must have been jumping around or something because when I put the phone down, this couple that were walking through the car park stopped and asked me if I'd won the lottery. And uh, I was like, no, even better. And I explained that I'd written a book and there was a publisher and they liked it. And um, they just didn't quite get it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was um, um, for joy. And then, of course, like a lot of uh, new writers, I, I haven't been writing in secret. So my husband knew that I had written a book, but he didn't know that I had entered it into, into a competition. Mm -hmm. So I then, when he came back to the car and I was grinning, he, he had to put everything into context about, you know, the book I wrote and I entered it in this competition and this is what the competition is. And um, then put the, the message on loudspeaker for him. So that was by far, I think, just one of the biggest highlights. I will always remember it. And then, of course, I called Anna back and we had the most delightful conversation. 
Um, and sort of from that moment on, I thought, right, this is it, I'm in. And even if I don't win it, um, I still, you know, I've gotten in with a publisher. They, you know, and had said that she loved it. And so, you know, this is my moment, this, this sort of thing. And then, of course, a few weeks later, I found out I, I won it and I hadn't been expecting to win it. And it just, it really just grew me. It was just such, such a surreal moment. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was so exciting. But I really do think one of the biggest highlights was, was listening to the voicemail and listening to Anna Gush because that's the first time that you really, I sort of really got validated as a writer that, oh, what I've done is, is all right. And, um, yeah, that was just, uh, just brilliant. Oh, well, that's such a gorgeous story far out. That's, I, I love that you have kind of that origin story, you know, that's, that's just a beautiful, beautiful story. And do you still have that voicemail? Because I would keep that voicemail. Have you, have you deleted it? Well, I, made, I didn't delete it. No, okay, of I, didn't delete it. I made a lot of people listen to it. Okay, great. Okay, it's like the equivalent of kind of framing something, isn't it, Matt? You literally have it as a recording of, of, of that initial kind of publishing excitement. And, yeah, because I guess you're trying to bottle up that excitement, but you actually have it recorded so you can go back to it. So that's perfect. That's I, I love that. That's brilliant. Um, okay, so going back a little bit further then, I was actually looking at your bio and you actually speak about growing up uh, above, above your parents' um, Melbourne bookstore, surrounded by other other people's voice, uh, stories. I love that. That is such a cool line. It's a cool way of putting it. Um, tell us about, I guess, that experience and I guess whether kind of writing was always something you wanted to do and then sort of whether crime fiction was something you always kind of wanted to do. So it sounds terribly romantic, I think, when you say you grew up above a bookstore. Everyone um, always thinks it's very enchanting and they've got these, these you know, beautiful images that, that sort of conjure up when, when I tell people that or when they learn that about me. Um, but uh, the reality is not quite the same. So the bookstore that my parents owned was a secondhand bookstore and it was on uh, Chapel Street in Melbourne, so quite a, a well-known area. And if anyone who does know Chapel Street's ever looked at the little flats above the shops there, you'll know what I'm talking about. They're these long, skinny things with windows at the front and windows at the back and then skylights through the rest of the house and no windows along the walls. Um, so they're very Pokey, they're dark. It was a second-hand bookstore. It was very dusty. I shared a bedroom with my sister. So I don't think it's quite as charming as everybody likes to think it is. Um, but of course, I was surrounded by books constantly. And so that did really instill that love of reading, which of course, as, as writers, we're all avid um, readers. So I think definitely the, the being surrounded by people's stories and having parents that obviously loved books enough to run a bookstore um, was a huge part of, of me becoming a writer. Not so much because I wanted to become a writer when I was younger and when we were living, living like that, but it, was, uh, it really just um, developed my love and my passion for the stories. And then, I mean, at, at the time, in, throughout my schooling years, writing wasn't really something that I had particularly loved doing. English was not my best subject. I was terrible at it, but I just, you know, it wasn't my, my best. Um, I sort of tended to sort of err more towards the sciences. And, um, yeah, writing was really, I'd always continued reading. One of these people that when I finished school, I kept, kept going on with it um, and read in lots of different genres, not just crime. And it was really um, as I came sort of more into my 30s that I, I delved more into crime and really found that that was sort of my happy place for reading. I just loved it. I loved being able to follow along with the, you know, detective or whoever and try and solve the mystery with them and, you know, weed out the red herrings and the suspects. And, um, yeah, so I... 
I think my, my love for writing actually didn't really come, or sort of really my interest in writing didn't come till after I'd had my first child. So I think I was just sort of looking for a bit of me time and me space. So I'd just gone back to work after having nearly a, just over a year of maternity leave. I'd been back working for a few weeks um, and I must have just not been feeling that inspired and had thought that um, writing would be sort of a really nice sense, a, a really good way to escape and um, just carve out that little bit of time just for me. So, yeah, that's sort of how it all, all came about. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it feels like, um, you know, I've heard so many kind of authors and particularly, I guess, um, you know, I guess female authors, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, writing really came to to them in that in that period of their lives where they were kind of doing that juggle between you know family and 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 children and that real kind of um, change period and kind of reprioritization period where you're kind of forced to think about your life and go okay what is it that I actually want so yeah that's um, yeah it's 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 quite cool how that kind of parallel experience has been kind of experienced by so many of us so that and it's you know it's so it's so lovely you know just to hear kind of your kind of you know how that has affected you and how you came to writing in in that kind of um yeah period as well so no it's it's just lovely to hear yeah I think it's incredibly common I mean you always as you say hear of women who after they've you know had their kids and then returning back to work that they, they start sort of um reconsidering their their choices and particularly career choices and looking at sort of carving their way through the world maybe in a slightly different path from than what they had originally planned for themselves so I yeah, I think it's exceptionally common yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's actually start chatting about The Whispering, this wonderful novel. Um, so I actually had the chance to read an early copy um, and it was really great because I actually had a chance to read it on holiday in far north Queensland, so while I was in Cairns. So it was completely atmospheric when I, you know, just being in that heat and then reading about it as well. So it was, you know, it was kind of the perfect read. You gave it to me at exactly the right time. Um, and I wanted to kind of introduce uh, the whisperings to the, to the listeners if I could by reading kind of the children's rhyme that appears on the very first page so it's not a spoiler <laughs> uh, but, I, but I think it really kind of sets up I guess the key mystery in the book but also kind of that really kind of atmospheric kind of almost eerie creepy kind of thread that you managed to kind of build into this novel so if you don't mind I'd like to kind of read that that um, that rhyme um, so it goes, the whispering wild will take your child if you dare to look away. When she hears the call, she will meet her fall, never again to play. Winds from the boulders will snatch and hold her where forever she will lay. Far out, so creepy and so atmospheric. <laughs> so glad you did that. Sorry. I'm so glad you said that it was creepy and atmospheric because that was completely what I was going for. Oh, perfect. No, no, definitely. Right from the start, you get that. So um, can you, I guess, set the story up for us and tell us kind of, I guess, how you came up with that idea and also kind of that rhyme itself. Was that something you came up kind of quite early on? Was that something that kind of came to you straight away or was that something you developed as, as you um, kind of went along? Yeah, so you know, the rhymes came to me um, towards the start. I'd read a few other books that had um, sort of rhymes throughout them and, and had always found it a bit sort of creepy and um, captivating at the same time. So I really wanted something that was going to um, capture the 
sort of the atmosphere of the novel and it is it's certainly at its heart it's an Australian mystery it's a crime novel but there is this sort of undertone of sort of eeriness and otherworldliness and and I wanted the readers to sort of be guessing not just about the the crime that happens but also about this other sort of phenomenon that, that's going on um, and so that that little rhyme that little poem um, is alluding to the whispering which is obviously where the book gets its title from which is um, it's not much of a spoiler either this comes up in chapter two it's um, a geographical phenomenon um, where the wind, when it's quite windy, usually pre-cyclonic, uh, sort of whips through these granite boulders and creates a sound that then sort of reverberates sort of through the rainforest. And the local people of the town um, that the book is set in, Granite Creek, uh, say that it is the sound of children um, trying to lure other people into the rainforest towards the boulders where they'll will inevitably uh, fall off boulders and lose their life. So I, I really wanted to sort of try and capture that, that creepy tone of it all. Um, the, the idea for, for that sort of that noise that comes from the boulders um, isn't actually my own. There is actually in Queensland, uh, Black Mountain, which is, is a, a mountain made of sort of granite boulders as well and has the same sort of um, geological phenomenon. So the, the idea came from there. Okay, all right. So, and and but Granite Creek itself is a fictional place, yes. So that's a that's not a place. That's no, no. The, the town is fictitious, and the description of the layout of the rainforest and the creek and where the bowls are, all of that's fictitious. It was just purely this phenomenon that when um, it, when it's quite windy and wind goes through through um, the cracks between rocks that it, it can make a sound. Um, and the Black Mountain legend up here is, is a lot to do with the Indigenous culture and, and the people that did lose their lives here um, and the sound that it is that the ancestors are sort of talking um, okay. is, is part of that Black Mountain legend as well. So it's a sort of a similar, um, a, a similar sort of thread that's woven through the whispering. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think the kind of the landscape itself, you know, the far north Queensland landscape itself is so strong in the novel, you know, and I, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of the weather, in terms of, you know, the, the fact that there's kind of a cyclone and the, and the kind of the, the wet weather, you know, the wet season uh, in far north Queensland, as well as kind of the atmosphere and the eeriness of the kind of the rainforest itself and the boulders and all of that. So, I mean, you talk about, again, in your bio of, of kind of wanting to use the landscape of that area that you live in at you know as part of your novels can you can you talk us to uh, about that in particular why you wanted to use that particular setting and kind of what attracted to you uh, at the specific kind of landscape elements that you really wanted to kind of weave into the story um, for this for this particular um, yeah book yeah yeah so I think we're we're very sort of spoiled for choice as authors in Australia we've got a huge amount of landscape to choose from and it's you know, equally beautiful as it is brutal. And um, I wanted to, I, I really wanted to go for um, something that hadn't been sort of done to death in, in literature. And I felt that the, the sort of the wet tropics, that it has been written about, yes, but it hasn't been done a lot. Um, and so I've also sort of followed the old um, thought of write what you know. And I had spent some years living up in Cairns and my husband is from Townsville. So we, um, even though at the time when I wrote The Whispering, I was living in Brisbane, we were coming up one to two times a year to North Queensland. And we would almost every time sort of visit uh, this small little rainforest town where my mum also have a little uh, cottage there. And it was, it's an incredibly um, beautiful and scenic place um, up here 
in North Queensland, but it is there is sort of a creepy element uh, with it. it. It's sort of it, it gets surprisingly cold there, given it's the even though it's North Queensland, you get this real sort of like mist and fog that rolls through. Um, and there, I learned this actually after I remember that there had actually have actually been a few disappearances as well up there. So I was like, oh, it all sort of ties together. But I. I've always sort of found, I've always found North Queensland and far North Queensland absolutely gorgeous. And when we left Cairns to move to Brisbane, it was, um, I was very sad to go. And there's something about the landscape up here that's, it's so unique and it's, um, it's just a, almost like a completely different world. And I think with the rainforest in particular, it's, it's very much alive mm. and um, it's very ancient and it feels of like a spirit of its own and I wanted that to sort of come across where the reader feels that the rainforest is sort of calling to them and talking to them and that it is sort of this living heaving beast um and yeah I just I just thought it was an incredibly atmospheric setting and I think that the the setting for a novel is exceptionally important you don't want it just to be the backdrop um that you sort of move your your characters around in front of like little props um you do want it to almost become another character, which we hear a lot of people saying now that, that the writing settings like characters, and I really did want that, but I think the part of the appeal of choosing the rainforest was it was something that I was I was very familiar with, we'd lived in far north Queensland for a number of years, but it was also something that I, I think would be um, a little bit fresh for readers. Mm. Yeah, and I think that kind of danger element really does come through because you, you get um, those scenes where, you know, Callum Heffenden, um, your main character, you know, he, he only kind of walks into the rainforest for a few, you know, for, for a little while and, and already he feels that kind of feeling of being kind of lost, you know, being that unfamiliar, you suddenly look back and you're like, oh, you know, where am I? And, and that feeling that the kind of the forest kind of envelops you and kind of that claustrophobia created by that where, you know, one moment it's familiar and then the next moment it just isn't. And, um, you know, which direction is, you know, wh wh where did you come from type thing? And yeah, and you kind of create that with, um, with that setting really well. So, yeah, no, I really enjoyed those, um, those, those bits and pieces. So, um, so, I guess speaking of Callum, um, you know, Heffenden, your your kind of main character. So he grew up in Granite Creek, but he has left the town after an accident. And, you know, some years later, he feels compelled to come back um, to the town when a man goes missing in this rainforest. So I was really interested in his character because he's, he's a person who's obviously greatly affected by what happened to him um, when he was an adolescent. Uh, both, I guess, he carries that trauma both mentally and as a, as a physical, um, you know, in his body as well. So can you talk to us, I guess, about writing Callum and I guess maybe even some of the research, if, if you had to do any research, I guess, to depict him and, and I guess because he is now living with a kind of a physical um, disability. But also I was really interested in his the way he thinks about kind of the life he could have led uh, which seems to be a real kind of thread that goes through his story about he's always thinking about kind of the aspirations lost uh, and and the life he could have led so I just thought that was a really interesting thread how you weave that in so if you can talk about that yeah absolutely so um Callum didn't come to me immediately I got the idea for the book as almost like a sort of like a what if question or this sort of it's a scenario. It's a very brief little thought that I had, and I sat on that thought for several months before I even began working on it or even sort of thinking of a, a main character. And um, I knew I wanted to tell a story that sort of um, explored this particular um, question that I had in mind, this particular story 
friend that I had in mind. And um, Callum came to me because I wanted, I was looking for a person to tell that story through, but um, I almost wanted a, a sort of an inconvenient character. I wanted someone who wasn't necessarily the best person to deal with that situation um, because I wanted my character, um, Paul Callum, I wanted him to struggle. And so all of Callum's qualities and his quirks and everything about him really was sort of spawned from that, that idea of wanting to be able to write a book where the character was almost struggling with everything was, that was thrown at him and is, is sort of a bit mismatched for the scenarios that he finds himself in. So, um, and, and that's sort of everything about Callum. So he is the, the sort of the character of Callum is, is supposed to be a quite likable guy. I want readers to root for him along the way. Um, it's not perfect, of course, but um, you know he tries his hardest to do the right thing. And he wants to do the right thing, and he wants to be a good guy. Um, and and with Callum, I um, there were there are sort of certainly a few aspects of him that that I did have to um, that I sort of tweaked um, to make him particularly to make sorry to make him particularly um, uh, challenged in the situation. So everything from down to, for instance, um, the fact that he wears glasses and we're in the middle of the wet season and he's forgotten to pack his contacts. So he constantly sees things fogged and streaked with rain. And um, as you mentioned, Callum does have a physical um, disability, and that came out of um, a, a sort of came about a few ways. So it's not too much of a spoiler. It comes up in about chapter five, so it's not sort of um, ruining too much for people. It's at the very beginning of the book that you learn that Callum has lost a leg, so he's, he's an amputee below his left knee. And um, that really, it came about for two reasons. So one, because I did want, I wanted to really make things hard for Callum and, and to really challenge him. And um, having that sort of disability in the environment that I set it in is, is going to be particularly hard. It's very hot, it's very humid, his stomach's going to swell up, uh, he's going to have trouble getting into his prosthesis. It, the, the terrain is going to be uh, terribly wet and slippery and, and he's going to find it quite difficult to find purchase with each step that he takes. So I wanted that challenge for him there as well um, because it would just sort of, it would just make that extra little, the, the story a little bit harder and sort of propel the, the plot along a little bit for him. Um, but also in terms of the research that I had to do for that, um, I didn't actually do that much research um, in terms of that side of things. So my day job is actually as a physiotherapist and I used to work up in Cairns for a number of years and worked at the Cairns Base Hospital and I did do a stint work in the rehab unit with amputees. And so I had a lot of that sort of experience working with that, with those sort of patients and um, thought I could use that knowledge then in the book. So I felt that it was something that I would be able to accurately write. Um, and so in terms of the research I did for that was almost none. The only, the only research I did do is I had to do a bit of Googling as to what the, um, the prosthetics are made out of nowadays, just to make sure I got that right, just in case there was a prosthetist that read the book and went, hang on. <laughs> Um, so just looking at what the socket and, and the shaft of the prosthesis is made out of. But aside from that, I didn't actually do any more research on uh, his physical disability. Um, yeah, but with, with Callum as well, I also I mentioned I sort of made him, um, I tried to make it convenient for me, I guess, in terms of with his, the areas, in terms of just wanting him to struggle through the book a little bit. But I also, in terms of his profession, um, made that, that, I guess I'm inherently lazy and I was trying to design a character 
that I wouldn't have to work too hard for to bring to life off the page. So um, I you know, love detective novels and, and police procedurals and all that, but I know that there's going to be a lot of research that has to go in with that. So I specifically didn't make him a police officer for that reason because I don't really know many cops. I didn't want to have to go reaching out to people that I didn't know asking for if I had things accurate or not in the book. Um, and so I made Callum an investigative journalist um, but I took it, I, I guess I took my laziness one step further and actually um, made it that he's not even currently working as an investigative journalist and that he's sort of taken a step back from that and that he just works at like the local rag and, and really just reports on local food and wine festivals. Um, so he's got the perks of the investigative journalist. He's a little bit nosy. He's not afraid to, um, you know, tell the odd fib to try and find the truth. Um, but also I didn't have to find out too much about journalism either because he's actually sort of on holiday, so to speak, when he's up in Granite Creek. Well, not on holiday, but he's not there in a work capacity. Um, and so Callum sort of came out of, um, yeah, sort of me wanting to have a character that was going to struggle in the situation. I didn't want it to be sort of the person who would find that situation particularly easy. And then he also came about as well, I think, out of me just wanting to, um, as a writer, to make things a bit easier for myself. Okay. But I think I, I really enjoyed that thread about him, you know, because I, I guess he wanted to be a police officer um, and then, you know, and I, and I think, you know, that, that, you know, part of him kind of wanting to keep pushing himself to find this mystery felt like, you know, him living you know, living out that kind of dream that all, you know, the, the, the life he could have had and he kind of wanted to prove something to himself almost. Um, but I, I kind of really enjoyed that thread of, you know, um, where you talked about kind of, a, I guess, you know, or where he struggled with those kind of um, failed aspirations. Um, but, I, but I also liked, um, and again, I'm, I'm being very careful here not to give any spoilers away, but I really like there was, I think there's a conversation he has or, you know, he certainly thinks about the idea of, you know, uh, when he thinks about the life that could have been, he just kind of realises that it would be full of kind of different challenges rather than necessarily better. I think he comes to that kind of resolution, um, which which I really, I, I really, um, yeah, that really kind of um, st stuck with me when I, when I read that. So, you know, I really like that. Um, Okay, so I wanted to talk about the fact that kind of you have these kind of two timelines and you talk about um, you have kind of Callum um, as an adolescent as well. So you have these kind of past flashbacks. And was that something you kind of consciously wanted to put in the book in terms of, you know, to specifically have the kind of the, the adult view of, you know, after things that happened to them and then that preview of, you know, uh, before anything that happened to them and kind of have those two uh, juxtaposing, I guess, views, which I thought worked really well. Um, yeah, was that something you kind of enjoyed writing? Like, I, I guess, the younger version of Callum and his friends? <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. I love writing young Callum. Okay. So in the book, Callum is 47, and there are a handful of scenes that flash back to, to 30 years earlier when he was 17 years old. And it was a, they were really joyous scenes to write. It was really fun to try and get into the head of the 17-year-old. And he's really, a, you know, it's a very sort of carefree nature that he has. He's a bit of happy-go-lucky. He... You know, he's got a pretty easy life, um, particularly compared to some of his um, classmates at school. And um, he really hasn't experienced Florida world. He sort of lives in this sort of shell of, of Granite Creek, the town that he's grown up in, and doesn't venture too far out of the nest. And he's got lovely parents and he's got you know, a great mate. And 
um, everything's everything sort of just sort of just falls into place for him. And I really enjoyed writing that from his point of view. And I liked the contrast of Callum as a seventeen-year-old who doesn't live in that sort of um, sort of self-absorbed world that's very carefree, um, and comparing that then to how he turns out thirty years down the track once he has has had a life and he's experienced the world and he's had quite a bit of hardship in his life. Um, I loved having that contrast and I, I tried to sort of make um, contrast a little bit more, uh, a little bit stronger for readers by um, changing the, um, the, the um, sorry, the uh, point of view that it was written in. So it was written in um, a third person point of view, the, the bulk of the book, um, of, um, he, should, he said, she said, um, versus when he's a teenager, I've written it in that first person point of view where it's I this and I that. And that's really trying to depict Callum as a youngster being a little bit more self-involved. And, you know, to the point he's not, you know, um, he's a lovely kid, but he's not even really aware of what's going on in the lives of his peers at school in their home lives. He's sort of a bit uh, sort of sheltered from it all and almost wears blinkers. Um, to a lot of the dramas that do sort of they just sort of happen around him rather than directly to him. So I did want that that really strong contrast between the two. But I absolutely loved writing Callum as a teenager. It was always such a joy. And I was always excited to get to those chapters. I wrote the book in a linear fashion and every time I knew I had a, a teenage chapter coming up soon, I'd get excited and I'd dive straight in and the chapter would be over and done with before I knew it because I'd I just couldn't wait to get it down. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. I love that little tidbit into your writing process. So I'm actually kind of um, getting conscious of the time. So I do want to kind of maybe chat about your writing process a little bit, because I do know that, you know, you have three little ones, um, you know, and, and also the fact that you were pregnant um, whilst you were writing um, this, this book or you whilst you were in the edits rather of this book. Um, and then, you know, you had your bud like, I think three months ago. So, so how has that been? I mean, just to juggle just this ginormous kind of task of, of you know, bringing, you know, both your gorgeous baby to life, you know, to, to the world, but also this, this gorgeous book into the world. So it's, I mean, that's, that must be full on. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Look, I think in years to come, I'll look back at this stage of my life and think, man, that was hectic. Um, but in terms of writing, I think I haven't, so I came to writing after having my first child and I, I guess I don't know any better. So for me, I've always written in nap times and in the evenings once, once my first child had gone to bed. And so it's always been writing these snatches of time that I can get. Um, I've never been someone who's had the luxury of being like, oh, I'm just going to spend the whole weekend writing. Um, and really that sounds wonderful and it just sounds so, you know, dreadfully decadent. I just can't fathom <laughs> it. Um, and so right from the get-go with writing, when I, I started it, just obviously as a, a little bit of a hobby and, and something to carve out some me time, it was it was something that was done in those snatches of time. And so I think I've just carried on with doing that. And it's just became, it's become the norm for my writing is that I do it when the kids nap or I do it um, in the evenings when, once they're finally all down. And it is hard. I mean, there's definitely, there's, there's some nights when I'm, you know, it's 8.30 at night, kids are finally all asleep and the last thing I want to do is sit at my computer and try to be creative. Um, I'd much rather, you know, curl up in bed with a good book or uh, flop on the couch and watch Netflix. But um, I, I'm pretty diligent with setting um, goals and targets and I think that's sort of what makes me do it. So I'm the kind of person who I'm inherently, I, I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Callum, I'm a little bit lazy at times and I'm a bit of a procrastinator too. So in order to combat that with writing, I set myself these deadlines. I always uh, 
have an idea or sort of a set date as to when I want to finish a draft that I'm working on and then I know how many words I need to be able to write each day in order to meet that deadline. And so I will, will almost come hell or high while we'll sit down at the computer um, and write until, you know, that, that word count does tick over. So I think for me, it really, it's a lot of goal setting and um, just the fact that I want to do it as well. And while sometimes it does feel hard and it does feel like work, it's that real love of writing and having loved when I have written something and, and um, yeah, just enjoying spending that, that time in that world as well. And so when you talk about sort of goal setting and, and setting yourself sort of those kind of, I guess, word targets, so would you, when you sit down at the computer at 8.30, would you sort of not get back up until you've kind of hit that word target? Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? And so, so what would that kind of writing session look like? Would that be, you know, like two, three hours or, or longer? Or, you know, how does that work in terms of your sleep? <laughs> Gosh, definitely not longer, no. I probably write for, um, I, so my word target at the moment and also when I was doing um, the first draft of the Whispering Tickets, I wrote it quite quickly. It took me um, just le less than three months to write. I had a target of um, a thousand words a day. And so I knew that if I wrote a thousand words a day for three months, I would you know, get to my 90,000 word uh, manuscript. I pull up well short of that, <laughs> the whispering. It was like 74,000 words or something that first draft. But I knew that if I had just sat down at my computer and made that 1,000 words every day that I would eventually, in a fairly short period of time, have a novel. Um, and in terms of um, what the writing sessions look like, I would sit down and I pretty much don't get up unless it's to put the kettle on um, until I reach, I reach that 1,000 words. And depending on the sort of, I guess, how I'm feeling will depend on how long it takes. But I'll never sort of, I mean, I don't think I could sit there for three hours. I think it would get to 11 o'clock at night and I'd be falling asleep. Um, but sort of an hour and a half to two hours is pretty normal. So I'll do that sort of most, mo mostly in the evening, sometimes at lunchtime if I've got one kid in kindy and the other's napping, yeah. um, I can squeeze in a lunchtime session. Wow, that's, you're a fast writer though. That's, you know, that's, you know, you're obviously, but I think, um, as you say, because you're in touch with your manuscript kind of every day, you must be in that world all the time. So it's, you know, so when you sit back down to write, you're kind of in that world already. And so um, I guess you're not spending a lot of time kind of thinking about it or, or trying to feel yourself back into the story. So, yeah. Absolutely. If I ever do have a couple of days off, I find it really hard to get back in. Yeah. I find I'm just staring at the, you know, the blank page with the cursor flashing at me. I'm not sure what to write or even really where I'm at with the story. So I do try and touch base with it if I can every day. Um, I'm also a plotter, I'm an enthusiastic plotter, and so that helps. I have a blueprint of where I'm going. And while it does change a little bit as you go along the way and you sort of figure out other plot threads that you want to add into it, I do have, yeah, a fairly sort of sturdy framework for the story before I even start writing chapter one. Okay. Oh, interesting. All right. And I just, I did want to ask sort of now that you've kind of gone through the process of getting through sort of entirety of, um, you know, a first book, like, you know, writing the whole thing, the editing process and getting up to publication. Are there anything now, is there anything now that you would do differently or are there kind of lessons that you've learned, you know, that are now kind of feeding back into your process that you're doing differently for sort of, you know, any works in progress? Yeah, I think um, I'm really trying, I'm, I'm writing a, a second book at the moment, I'm really trying to leave any anxiety at the door, basically. So I found that when I was writing the first draft of The Whispering, that you just had this little voice niggling away all the time, telling you that, oh, this story's not good enough, and, you know, these characters are too two-dimensional, and, you know, the setting's a bit flat, and, you know, it's not pacey enough. 
And really, I mean, it's probably correct of the first draft. And, you know, I think having gone through the whole process now from beginning to end with, with one book, I realised that a lot of that, you know, depth of character and scenery description and a lot of that atmosphere, it comes in subsequent drafts. And I think when you're going through the process for the first time, you don't necessarily realise that. And so when you're writing, right, and also a lot of learning about the character comes through writing those drafts and redrafting and rewriting. And so the, the characters don't really start to lift off the page until you've sort of done several drafts. And so that, yeah, at the moment as I'm writing uh, my first draft for, for book two, I'm trying to just sort of keep all that sort of concern that, oh, it's not good enough and all the characters are, are a little bit flat at the moment, trying to keep all that at bay because I know that they will come to life and it will all come together as I start the rewriting process. Yeah, it, it is. It is this um, confidence, isn't it? It's it's all about confidence about you know, and that whole imposter syndrome that you know affects us at all different stages. And I think as writers, it it could come at, at any part of that process, you know. Um, because I would say I would have almost the opposite reaction because the first draft is always kind of the the play stage where there's literally no voices in in the room apart from my own, and that's the the version that I enjoy the absolute most. And it's once I get to the editing and once I let all the other voices in is where I start to kind of uh, start to worry so that's that's really interesting uh, you know the different stages different writers kind of let those kind of um, imposter syndromes kind of get them so it's really interesting um, so you mentioned kind of your work in progress so is there anything you can tell us about that and is it also crime yeah, I can't, I can't sort of um, let too much out of the bag, but it is um, it's an Australian mystery as well, so it's crime. Um, it would be very much in a similar vein to The Whispering. So people that do enjoy The Whispering will most likely also enjoy this second book. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm writing standalone, so it's not a, a series. Okay. But that's about all I can tell you, Jacob. <laughs> it's not much at all, but okay, but we'll be looking forward to it. <laughs> Very <laughs> tiny little bit. Okay, you're not giving anything away. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Okay, that's fine. All right. <laughs> We're moving on. Okay, so I just wanted to check, are there any events um, that are coming up with the um, with the Whispering that you can talk about? Uh, because it's obviously it's coming out in less than a week or it's just, just over a week now. Is that right? That it's coming out? Yeah, just under two weeks. It comes out on the 6th of July. Okay, yes. Yes. So are there any kind of um, events planned or, you know, is there, is there a launch that you're looking forward to? What, what can, um, you know, readers, uh, not readers, listeners look forward to? So um, as I mentioned, I just did the Festival Stories just this weekend gone up in Townsville and there are a few other events uh, coming up or, or a few things I've got coming up. So there's um, several uh, radio interviews and more podcast interviews that I've got coming up and along with a few sort of um, uh, written interviews for various media outlets. Um, I think the best way for people sort of who do want to sort of follow along and, and see what's going on is to follow me um, online. So they can find me on my website at veronicalando.com um, and there they can actually sign up to receive um, just sort of tidbits from me and information about sign up for that and get, get that straight to your inbox. Um, otherwise, people can follow me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm at Veronica Lando Author. Otherwise, I'm also on Twitter and that's at Veronica underscore Lando. So I think, yeah, people who are wanting to sort of um, read up a little bit more or have another little bit of a listen, um, that's probably the best way to go about it. Follow me on social media or jump, jump onto my website. 
Excellent. No, that sounds fantastic. So I just want to say, Veronica, thank you so much for doing this with me. Uh, you know, just huge, huge, huge congratulations on, you know, getting to this, this stage. It's such an exciting time, you know, to just be at that, that cusp of, you know, having the book out there. And I wish this book and you, you know, just every success, I hope it just flies off the shelves. Um, you know, thank you again for doing this with me. And thank you, wonderful Danny, for giving us this opportunity to do this takeover episode. It's been so so much fun um, to have a chat to you about this wonderful book. Oh yes, thank you so much, Jamuka. And of course, thank you, Danny, for letting us take over the microphone for an episode. Um, it's been an absolute delight for me to chat to you uh, tonight, Jamuka. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited for the book to come out for just um, everyone to start getting into their hands, hopefully, um, in just a few short weeks. Excellent. Thank you so much, Veronica. And um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to um, next time we meet, it will be in person, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Thank you. See you later. Thanks to